News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It is pretty rare that you can get members of the government and the opposition to agree on something in Canada, let alone the fact that it was Catherine McKenna and Michelle Rempel Garner opposite sides of the aisle, opposite on so many things, but they definitely agreed on something this past weekend. And what was it? Well, the story you probably read about where the second in command of the Canadian forces and the head of the Royal Canadian Navy went golfing this week with General Jonathan Vance. That is despite the fact that General Vance remains under military police investigation following allegations of inappropriate behavior that were first reported by Global News back on February the 2nd. So the investigation is ongoing. So the controversy over this golf game reaches the highest levels. For more on that, we're joined now by Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Mercedes, thank you for joining us this morning. Okay, so what is this all about? It's about a golf game, but so much more than that. Yeah, because I think on the surface, people go like, oh, people went golfing, so what? Um, it's who went golfing and the why that is is problematic here. So we found out that um, a, a trio of pretty powerful military guys went golfing last Wednesday, June the 2nd, um, on a private military golf course here in Ottawa. And those folks were the current head of the Royal Canadian Navy, along with the vice chief of the defense staff and former chief of the defense staff, General Jonathan Vance, who is under investigation by police for alleged sexual misconduct. Um, there's a couple of problems with this particular trio going yeah. golfing. N- number one, uh, the vice chief of the defense staff is who the military police report to. That's who's investigating General Jonathan Vance. And there's been a lot of concern that the military police don't have independence from the chain of command, that the chain of command can actually interfere and recommend for or against charges. So here you have a guy who's clearly indicating that he's pretty buddy-buddy with General Vance, who's under investigation, and that's the guy who the military police report to, and they decide to go for a golf game. Problem number one could affect the investigation in the eyes of many troops who are worried about that. Problem number two, head of the Navy out there. Who is one of the most prominent victims in this story? A woman naval officer. Craig Baines has come out and publicly said he encourages women to come forward to talk about what's happened. And yet the message that he's sending is, well, I encourage you to come forward. I'll go golfing and have a good time with someone who's been accused of serious sexual misconduct because they're my friend. Um, and he basically said that in a statement that, you know, this was a, a display of loyalty, a public display of loyalty to John Vance. Well, he was, uh, you know, apologizing. But what an interesting thing to say as a part of your apology. Um, and then on top of all of that, because they went to a military golf course, there's a private military country club here in Ottawa, uh, which no one really knew existed in, in the civilian world until this happened. Um, they were recognized because, of course, these are yeah. three very high profile people in the military. And they actually shut the course down on either side of them, hoping nobody would see them. But of course, people did. And that's how we found out. Right. And I can't imagine that anybody at the government level was happy about hearing this. 
No, uh, <laughs> not happy at all. Uh, I was talking to a senior source who told me that the minister's office was absolutely livid. Uh, they were even more livid that when they confronted these uh, two, they didn't confront John Vance because Vance actually hasn't done anything wrong. In this case, he's out of the military. He's just going for a golf game. It's the, the two senior officers who are in and setting this example um, and kind of got a shrug, like, well, what? We're friends. Of course we went golfing. Ugh. No thought to the message that this is sent to the victims, the concerns it raises about the independence of the military police investigation. Um, and by the way, General Rulo, the guy who the military police report to, still has not apologized. Only the head of the Navy has. What I found also interesting about this is that many female members of parliament were vocal, and, and people on different sides of the political spectrum were in agreement on how they didn't like this. Catherine McKenna had something to say. Michelle Rempel Garner had something to say. Exactly. It's uh, it was a rare moment of uh, you know cross partisan agreement, especially by by women looking yeah. at this and and anyone who's been victimized by sexual misconduct or sexual assault. Saying, what message does it send if you say you are publicly going to protect and support victims and listen, and then you go golfing with the accused? No one is saying that there shouldn't be, uh, you know an assumption of innocence until guilt is proven. No one is saying you shouldn't get due process, but there is a huge gulf between due process and going golfing during an active investigation. Right, and So you, it, it certainly triggered a strong response. And when you know that what you're doing is a public display of loyalty. Yeah, that was just such... I was absolutely fascinated by that choice of wording to say, you know, in this public display of loyalty. And he was apologizing, saying he realized it was inappropriate. But okay, if you're making a public display of loyalty um, for somebody who's been accused of this, how do you think that that makes every woman in the Canadian Navy, every man in the Canadian Navy who has been subject to this feel about how you view their accuser potentially? Is personal loyalty more important than the rank that you're wearing? Um, there's a lot of questions there that we're digging into today. Right. Okay. Does, does this not make the defense minister's job much more difficult here, Mercedes? And he's already been having a tough time with this issue. Yeah. I mean, it really looks like he doesn't have control of it. Yeah. Like, you know, people aren't getting it. And, and even with those communications, there's no way the minister's office saw that communication and said, cool, put that out where it says personal loyalty. Um, and I think that it it's really showing that he is struggling to try to deal with this. Um, and there's a lot of people who say that they don't think he should be in the post anymore. They don't think he's capable of straightening it out. They also have a tough decision. Uh, they can't continue to remove every single person from their job when there's some sort of an allegation because it'll decapitate the whole military. Uh, but at the same time, you can't just shrug your shoulders or have a double standard. Uh, so I think that it's interesting we haven't heard from Mike Rulo. I'll be very interested to see what happens with him because he effectively was demoted earlier this year, um, and that is scheduled to kick in any day now. He he uh, is being moved out of the vice chief of the defense staff job to an advisor job. I've never, ever seen that in my time in Ottawa. Um, and for Craig Baines, I think that they will probably try to help him recover because they think he did something stupid, maybe didn't think about it. Uh, but it sure just kind of boggles your mind that these are supposed to be the top strategic thinkers, and they yeah. could not realize uh, why this might be problematic. And I think that speaks to the issues of the culture up there. Oh, it certainly does. Mercedes, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. So much to catch up on this morning with our Raji Silhal. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. I wanted to update you on something I told you about last week, which is the Vancouver Art Gallery auction. Oh, right. We the were- Seth Rogen piece. 
Exactly. That is a beautiful Seth Rogen fiery red ceramic vase piece that um, was estimated to go for 5000 but it's currently over 11000 at the Vancouver Art Gallery auction that's happening online. It closes tomorrow at 1. And I talked to Robert Heffel from Heffel Art Auctions, who's handling the whole auction. And um, he told me just last night that uh, bidding is doing super well across the board on, on a lot of the pieces. And um, the Seth Rogen piece, which was... Uh, hoping to go for about 5,000 is currently over 11,000. A lot of pieces wow. are well over how much uh, they were expected to go for. And there's a lot of pressure on Vancouver gallery to do really well for this art auction. Because if you look at the last year and a half, they obviously suffered with having no admissions for ages and employees were asked to cut hours. And then just prior to the pandemic, Simi, um, the art gallery went through a, a bit of a suffering period with its ref- reputation as uh, the director was shifted out and, and some new blood yeah. was brought back into the gallery. And so this is like really great for the gallery that um, the art auction is already doing super well. And then I learned um, from talking to Robert Heffel that the um, art auction actually goes into overtime when it's a really hot piece. So like if two people are or more are going after a piece and they're neck and neck, they they let it run the clock a little bit. So it's kind of like a well, dramatic up the sporting price. event. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> they want exactly. it to get even more and more. Now, I remember that uh, I have the vivid picture in my mind of this particular Seth Rogen piece. And it was the glaze that made it so unique because... I just wondered how he had gotten it to look like that. So maybe he's got a backup career here. Not that he needs one. Yeah. In terms of uh, like a a side hustle, this is um, supreme. I mean, he's super talented as a ceramicist. Some of his pieces are remarkable. I mean, his name even not attached to them. They should go for a lot of money. Um, I unfortunately can't bid, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for those exactly. who are interested. So true. A, um, a cool twelve thousand lying around. This would be a good, uh, like, good time for the Vancouver Art Gallery, I guess, to start thinking. And they've probably got some great exhibitions planned because I feel like everybody's going to want to do something, go somewhere, see something in the next little while. Yeah, and get back into those spaces. I have talked to uh, some people at the Vancouver Art Gallery about what's ahead in the next year. And they're actually, as an organization, doing a lot of introspection and reflection over the last year and a half. So when they do get back and running full steam, it's not going to be business as usual. It's gonna The work is going to be reflective in a way of the fact that we went through a pandemic. And Simi, I think that's really important. I want to see movies. I want to see shows. I want to read things that reflect the last year and a half. I don't want to be this strange twilight zone blip where we go back to things as normal and act like there wasn't a pandemic and people weren't isolated for ages. Like I, I want us to like address it, you know? Well, yeah, exactly. But I have a feeling human nature being what it is, people are just going to like throw caution to the wind. They just want to, they don't want to think about it anymore. They don't want to think about any of that period. They just want to put it behind them and have a good time. You think? Well, I, I know. (laughs) <laughs> it's yeah. not even that I think. I think that is what human nature is. Like we make the same mistakes over and over again because we think about the present and the future and we don't necessarily always want to learn about the past. I think people, you know, if it had been last summer and things had gone back to normal, yeah, I think we would have been, oh yeah, lesson learned. Like we got to remember all this. But it's been so long now. I think people are just ready to shake it off and go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's like the description of a straight up trauma case, Simi. 
<laughs> like we need to True. address what happened rather than act like nothing happened, business as usual. And then we don't even know how the pandemic affected, for example, like pandemic babies, the ones who came up in it, who were, were like zero yeah. to a year during that period and, and didn't see their families, extended families, extended friends, didn't you know get the kind of uh, visual stimulus they're exactly. meant to, you know, be in different environments and that kind of things. Like there's real fallback from us having been so isolated as eager as I am to like run around and do everything which I'm going to I still want us to like talk about what the last year and a half meant I was fortunate to be bubbled with my favorite people that's um, true family but there's a lot of people who live alone who had a hard time um, people who are elderly who are isolated that is so true this is mornings with Simi You may have heard of something called the Scared Straight Tour. It originally intended to show children and teenagers how people with addictions live on the downtown east side. Uh, Purportedly, it was an effort to educate kids about the dangers of drug use. But, oh boy, when you saw what they had written online, there was a version of their website that, by the way, is no longer online, where the business said it offered, quote, Tours of the worst drug-infested ghetto in North America, end quote, and promised conversations with local residents who, quote, won't hesitate to share just how addiction has ruined their lives, end quote. In-person tours were offered at $350 a person. They even had a subscription to a virtual tour for $89 per person. I mean, there was a lot wrong with this, right? The language, the stigmatization, just like all of it. And so we're going to talk about, you know, why it was so wrong and why now it's not going ahead either. So Guy Filicella joins us, harm reduction advocate who also overcame drug addiction himself. Guy, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me, Sammy. So what did you think when you first heard about these tours? Well, it's just, it, I mean, it's so wrong on so many levels. Like, you know, it's voyeuristic. It uh, perpetuates stigma. Um, not only towards, you know, people who do have uh, substance use issues, but also towards people who are struggling with poverty and homelessness. I mean, it's just, um, it was just so, like, horrible. But, you know, to be honest with you, I've, even in my time in the downtown east side, had witnessed many of these um, tours. A lot of them, there were people who were bringing in hockey teams into the area, you know, I know a lot of it was done through VPD as well, or I'd seen VPD with them. Um, and just there's just so much like that creates uh, a negative impact towards people who are struggling. And, you know, you can only look to uh, tours like these that um, perpetuate the stigma that exists in our society today. And it's not one that will uh, end it. It's one that'll um, bring more people um, to look at people who struggle with, you know, judgment and, and bias. Yeah, I have to say, like, even listening to the description and reading about this, it, it made it seem like, you know, people in the downtown east side were some kind of exhibit in a zoo. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you know, and even even if you, you know, the person who was putting on these tours, I mean, it's it's, you know, he's looking at it as a business opportunity. He's not looking at it to bring any change or... Um, you know, or to help people. If you're, if you're into uh, helping people who are, you know, going down the wrong path, well, there's many other ways that you can do that. You do not ever um, bring something 
uh, or bring people into a community of people who are struggling uh, to show them like, hey, you'll wind up here um, if you use drugs. That's just so far from the truth. Um, yeah, I, I mean, even when I was a, a youngster at 14, they brought us um, into our tour of Ocala prison back then. And, and like, you, you know, all that did to me, I was very nervous um, yeah. going into a, to a, an adult prison as a, as a youth. And just remember, like, you know, I'll say anything to get out of here. But that didn't deter uh, my life or make me think, you know, it just put a lot of stress and anxiety mm. uh, on top of things that I was already dealing with. So, I mean, that's, it's the, that notion of, oh, we're going to scare you straight, right? Do you think that's just outdated now? Oh, come on. It was outdated when it first came out. It's just <laughs> yeah. terrible. I mean, I, like, I mean, this is just goes back to, like, the Nixon-Reagan uh, era of the just say no, don't do it, drugs are bad, fear, you know, uh, it just doesn't, it's, it just doesn't work. And it doesn't have a place to, to work. I just think these individuals uh, did it as a, as a way to profit um, for their own selves. They sure didn't do anything for that community except, uh, you know, try to take money and take advantage of people who are struggling. Right. So, but Guy, in this case, it's very clear, right, that people in the downtown east side spoke up about this and resulted in this changing. And I, I view that as a positive. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you have a lot of uh, uh, great advocates in the downtown east side that uh, once they were aware that these things were happening, became uh, livid, uh, and rightfully so, uh, and spoke out about it. And yeah, I'm glad to see that uh, that tour is canceled. But how many other ones are still going, um, you know, that you don't know about? or or people think it's a it's a great idea it's it's a, it's a terrible idea and it's just hurtful on so many levels towards uh, not just people who are struggling but also towards your youth if you're educating your youth like that that's just terrible i mean i go speak into high schools all the time and um you know i i never tell youth to use drugs but however if they are using substances i i definitely tell them that they're uh they have to use them safely so different different time uh and uh you need to educate your youth on um you know the realities of their lives as well, not just uh, an expectation like don't experiment or don't try because that just doesn't work. Telling somebody no just actually makes them do it. Yeah. What? So how do you reach kids then? I'm sure a lot of parents would like to know then what does work. Well, you, you know, you have to give you have to give the information that's true. Like, you know, usually when I when I do talks at high schools, um, you, you know, uh, all the times I, I talk about the the racism in our drug policies, that's the starting point so that kids have an understanding of how it was created, why it was created, and why we view substance use the way we do today. And then you break, you have to really dismantle it piece by piece. <clears throat> and also to educate kids on, you know, harm reduction, because, you know, a lot of the kids are, are going to experiment through high school or university, and you want to make sure that they're prepared in a way that they have the awareness around it. Um, and the ability to support people who are struggling with substances. All the youth that I know, I can guarantee you this, that um, they do know someone or somebody that is struggling uh, with substances, and they want to support them. They just don't know how. Right. And so you educate people on that as well. And, and it's, a, it's been a real win-win. Do you think sometimes, like, for young people, it's the curiosity, right, that leads them to try these things, but they also don't know all of the stories, the potential pathways that could happen as a result of that curiosity. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of things, peer pressure, there can be, you know, trauma, bullying, um, 
identity, trying to fit in. There's just many reasons of, of and, and pleasure, um, you, you know, as well. And, and a, a lot of the youth, you know, it may start with alcohol and marijuana, and then it progresses to other substances as well. But you know what? I think uh, educating our youth on definitely all those avenues uh, of, of substance use and how it, how it starts. And um, yeah, it's been, it, it's been really great. And the kids ask like tons of great questions, you know, like if, if the, our policies are rooted in racism, then how come the government doesn't change these policies? And I always think yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> yeah, and great right. question. So the kids are really involved and it's a very interactive session. It's not just me speaking and them listening. It's, it's them talking as well. And, and the biggest thing that impacts our youth in the high schools and in our society is what they tell me is, is stigma. It just drives them to use alone. And it already starts to disconnect them and isolate them. And if it does become problematic, then they're sure not going to reach out because they know how everybody feels about it. Okay, so then what advice do you have for parents out there, Guy, who think, well, if the scared straight thing, if you, if you can't do that, that doesn't work anymore, what does? Open, honest conversations. And hey, guess what? Like, you know, um, kids are going to experiment with substances, at least prepare them to, to understand, like, all the, you know, the things that are going to happen, you know, with that. It's okay. People, you know what? People freak out when people smoke a little marijuana. I'm just like, oh, my gosh, it's going to be okay. It's like, you know, it's not like the end of the world right now. Um, you, you know, so just having open, honest conversations with your youth. And accepting the fact that if your child does come home and says that they are experimenting, then what are you going to do? Um, don't freak out. It's not, you know, they don't have to go to treatment. There's, you know, it's, it, it, it can be one of those conversations that goes in a direction where your parents, your kids trust your parents. And otherwise, if you don't have these open and honest conversations and be not judgmental if you're used to experimenting, then it can turn into they'll just do it behind your back. Right. Guy, thanks so much for your time this morning. Oh, thanks for having me, Sammy. Have a great day. You too. That's Guy Felicella, harm reduction advocate, talking about the issue of these scared straight tours. Uh, one that was offering, what, $350 per person, taking people down to the downtown east side. Uh, obviously, a lot of attention paid to that for the wrong reasons. It has now been shut down. But as Guy says, there are other ones out there. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the rides are running. You can hear the screams from the fairgrounds that host the host Playland, actually, in the east part of the city. Now, they reopened to guests. They have strict COVID-19 safety protocols, but this was the first weekend things were up and running. It's a bit of a muted restart, but we thought, let's get all the details on this. Shelly Frost joins us now, the PE president and CEO. Shelly, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Cindy. So how did it go this weekend? It was fantastic. You know what? When it started to pour at 5 o'clock on Friday night, I won't, I, I'm not going to lie, we were a little disappointed by that. But people came out anyway, and it was awesome. We had thousands of people come through this weekend. Um, and it was just a lot, of, a lot of great fun, a lot of smiles on pe- people's faces. It was nice to have the staff back, and there was just a real sense of uh, brightness, a real sense of things are getting a little bit back to normal and uh, looking forward to the future. Well, you know, people came out in the rain, right? They must have been looking forward to it. Uh, so <laughs> how did it work then? I mean, it was a muted restart. You've got a lot of protocols in place. So what is we allowed do. at this point? 
Yeah. So uh, instead of just buying a ticket for any time, you buy a very you buy a date specific ticket so that we can control our capacity. We've got uh, about twenty five percent capacity in the park, so we have lots of room for social distancing. We're still reco- requiring masks in the lineups and on the rides, um, and there's social distancing in the lineups and on the rides. There's sanitization on the way in the ride and on the way off. Um, and, you know, just uh, there's lots of physical space. So um, uh, our health or your guys' health is, is absolutely our top priority. And we want to make sure that people come have a fun experience and walk away feeling healthy and safe. So, Shelley, how will the Step 2 reopening plan influence what you're doing at Playland and the PNE? Yeah, you know, um, as we kind of watch what's happening with the lifting of restrictions, um, what it will allow us is allow us to do is to add a few more people in the park. We're still going to be really careful. We want to make sure, obviously, that it's a really safe experience. Um, you know, so we're not going to change a whole lot uh, over the next little while, other than potentially increasing our capacity. And we'll just be listening very carefully to what the <clears throat> provincial health office says before we make any uh, any dramatic changes. I do know that right now, Vancouver Coastal Health uh, and the, the health office have been thrilled with our plans. And, uh, and so we'll just continue to work really closely with them. Okay, so you talked about potentially increasing capacity, but are you keeping like the booking of a certain time? That seems to be working. Yeah, you know, that does seem to be working. And I think it allows families to plan as well. Uh, and it certainly allows us to be able to plan for staffing. And that's important for us because, I mean, this is a really financially challenging time, as we've been saying. Um, and although we've been able to open the doors, having our park open at only a 25% capacity is really financially challenging. Um, and it's certainly not a financial windfall that's going to, you know, that's going to make a huge difference for the PE. But we want to be open. We want to make sure that our guests and families have safe summer mm-hmm. outdoor activities to do. So where are we at then with plans for the PE? Yeah, that's a good question. <clears throat> good question, Sydney. We are planning for a small fair. Um, you know, we were quite sure that we were not going to be able to have a fair. And so uh, this is not the kind of event that you can pull together in six or eight weeks. Um, you know, we plan for our fair a year, at least a year in advance. So it will be a scaled down version. We are still going to try and bring out some of your favorite foods, some of your favorite uh favorite entertainment. We're going to have the super dogs and stuff there. We won't be able to have a, a concert series because that's still not um, allowed as part of the, the right. protocols, but um, you'll still have food. You'll still have fun. You'll still have uh, some entertainment and we look forward to being able to welcome you out. So okay. will, is there a capacity in there to increase if, you know, July 1st goes well, we hit the next stage. Will you be able to expand that PE plan? Yeah. You know, we're being cautiously optimistic uh, but we are planning right now for where we think we will be in August, and uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna try and and build out for the best that we can possibly be at that point, and we'll scale down if we have to. If something happens and cases continue to go up, or we run into some vaccine problems, um, then we'll scale it back down. But right now, we're gonna make it the biggest that we possibly can based on where we think we'll be in August. Right. You normally hire thousands of people for this. So where are you at with hiring? How many people do you need this year? Yeah, you know, we'll be hiring hundreds. Uh, we won't be hiring thousands, but uh, we still are going to try and bring in all of those bright young people, um, new Canadians, people that have barrier, barriers to entering the workforce. We are really proud of being able to find opportunities for those people. Uh, and we're going to be starting our recruitment in the next couple of weeks. So watch for that. Yeah. Okay. So where can people look for that? Yeah, please go to peony.ca. Uh, we have a link that says jobs. 
We'll tell you all about what's available. Um, you know, we've done some of our hiring, well, a lot of our hiring for Playland, but uh, we're always looking for great people. So please do keep an eye out, uh, spread the word, and let's get some people some jobs this summer. Yeah, Shelley, looking ahead then, are there things that, you know, lessons learned during the pandemic or what's gone on in the last year that might stay with Playland and the PE moving forward? Yeah, you know, I think um, every business is going to walk away with some different ways to do things. Um, you know, I, I really love the fact that we are doing date-specific tickets. Um, again, I think that really helps us plan. It helps families plan and it allows us to control capacity. I think that's something that might stick. <laughs> and we've really learned, too, that we need to change, well, that we want to change up the experience. And so, you know, people who come out once, we want to bring, bring them out two or three times. And so we're going to be doing things a little bit differently in the park, like up, up in Playland. We're going to have different promotions uh, every weekend celebrating things like, you know, it's Father's Day this weekend. We're going to have dads and, and mini donuts. We have some great new glazed um, iced mini donuts, which are amazing. We're going to celebrate National Hot Dog Weekend. We're going to, you know, just bring some different entertainment and some different um, different experiences into the park. So you can come a couple times a year and feel like it's a bit different. Well, now I'm hungry. Uh, before <laughs> before I let you go, though, the question everybody always wants to know is, tell me about the Peony Prize Home this year. Oh, thanks for asking. <laughs> this year, uh, the Peony Prize Home is in South Surrey. Normally, we have a vacation lot, either you know somewhere in yeah. the interior or out on the island. This year, because we weren't going to build it on site, um, and normally, we, you know, as you know, we build it twice. We build it on site for people to see during the fair, and then we take it apart and we move it and we rebuild it on its final site. Um, it gave us the opportunity to just do a house in the Lower Mainland, which was really exciting. And the response has been phenomenal. It is an amazing location, South Surrey. It's a walking distance to the beaches. Um, you know, we still have really affordable tickets at $30. And uh, that's one way if, you know, people are not comfortable coming out in public yet or going out to Playland, uh, that they can still support the PE. So please, peonyprizehome.ca. There are virtual tours and some really great photos. It's really a beautiful home. I'm checking it out right now. Okay, Shelly, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. We'll see Sh- you soon. Yeah, you will. Shelly Frost, a PE president and CEO. So, Playland, despite the rain this past weekend, opened and people were happy to be there, Shelly tells us. And there will be likely an increase in capacity with the next step in restrictions. But you, there are still, you know, you can still expect to see some kind of PE this year. And that is good news, right? This is Mornings with Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. One of the interesting things about the pandemic is that it left a lot of people with time on their hands and some expendable income too, right? You weren't going out to restaurants, you weren't buying as many new clothes. Well, that means that people tried out some new hobbies. We had lots more puzzles at my house, I could tell you that. And also more Lego. Raji Silhal back with us to talk more about that. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, you know, this started, this story started for me when you passed along a story from the New York Times about how Lego isn't just for kids. And I was introduced to this term, AFOL, the official term for an adult fan of Lego. And it got me thinking, huh? Like, how big is this thing? And it turns out, very. There's an AFOL association and many AFOL clubs in Vancouver. And I talked to a guy, Paul Hetherington, a Gen Xer, who didn't even actually Lego that much as a kid. He came to it as an adult. And he even gave up his daytime job two years ago because doing Lego conventions and commissions for people uh, was just taking off for him that he could do that. So if you want to find out how big someone's obsession is, no matter what the obsession is, I always ask them, hey, where do you store it?
I have a lot of Lego bricks on hand. Um, there's some in storage, but um, I'm in a townhouse. So my, my second bedroom, the extra bedroom is the Lego room. And of course you can imagine there's all sorts of plastic bins and containers there and pull out drawers. I sort basically by, by piece type. The room is definitely not big enough. Every year Lego makes more parts, but my room doesn't get any bigger. So it's a challenge to, to know where to put stuff when it comes in. Gosh, a lot of Ziploc bags, a lot of Rubbermaid containers. You know, I'm very fortunate that, that I have a, a storage facility off site. So I, I do a lot of driving back and forth from storage to here to, you know, depending on which projects I'm working on. Wow. How many pieces of Lego do you think you have? Uh, gosh, probably two to three million, I would say. That comes from like, you know, at least 20 years of collecting and it, it builds up over time. That's crazy. Two to three million. What does he build? <laughs> He makes all sorts of things. He's made this beautiful, intricate robot, a detailed Gotham City from Batman, the haunted house from Scooby-Doo, and the ultimate and rare experience from all of this. I basically won the, the Lego golden ticket back in 2019, where I was one of 12 people from around the world selected to display a model at the Lego Masterpiece Gallery at the Lego house in, in Billen, Denmark, which is the home of the Lego brick. So I got a free trip out there and basically Lego showed me around and or all of us uh, around and gave us basically the best day of our lives. What was that like? I'm lucky. I get to experience that in, in all the conventions that I go to. We have a local one in Vancouver called Brick Can, uh, which, you know, during non-COVID times happens every May. Most of my friends now are, are Lego people from around the world. Getting to go to Denmark was really special because I was meeting people from Asia, from Europe, from, you know, basically everywhere. And uh, it's just a common language. It's like being a musician. As soon as you, you jam with somebody, like your best friends. I love that yeah, use of me. Lego people. <laughs> yes. A-Falls, adult fans of Lego, um, are, you know, they exist at all kinds of levels. For him, he's at the top, right? One of the top Lego people in the world is right here in Vancouver. And I thought for sure he must get sponsored by Lego, but he doesn't. And Lego is not cheap. So he collects a lot, spends a lot of money on that. And he's enjoyed charting Lego's evolution back from, you know, the yellow, just straight up yellow bricks that it used to be to the superheroes. And a lot of people know the yellow castle and the Star Wars sets. He explained to me that 30% of sets are marketed towards adults. That blew me away because I had no idea. But the funniest thing he told me about was that he had some Lego when he was 10 and he stopped collecting altogether around that age. And then it wasn't until he was an adult that he fell back into it. But A-Falls are not chill at all about these kinds of blackout periods in their lives where they were not invested in collecting Lego. You know, I became obsessed with, with trying to collect some of the, the earlier sets from my childhood. And then uh, as an adult fan of Lego and A-Fold, you know, we always talk about our dark ages, which are the years where you, you don't collect. Uh, for me, that was sort of my rock and roll years when I was playing drums in bands and stuff. I'm trying to you know, collect all the sets that I missed during my dark ages. And then it, it's just been a, a whole matter of, of keeping up with the current sets. And now Lego makes so many sets that you, you can't even keep up with it. And even if you could, you probably couldn't build them all. And you probably shouldn't. <laughs> no, no, it's, you know, <laughs> life, life is short. You have to enjoy it. <laughs> Can you pinpoint what part of Lego you revel in? Like, what is it about your personality that has you hooked on Lego? I'm an only child, so that could be part of it. You know, I, I, I play well on my own. Um, but for me, it's the creativity. You know, like I started out as a Lego collector and I didn't really have any ambition to, to build, you know, large artistic creations. Uh, and that kind of evolved over time when I 
had the opportunity through the Vancouver Lego Club to, to build for shows. Um, and I realized I was, you know, quite good at it. And um, I, I really enjoyed the research and trying to, you know, get get as much information on the, the subject that I was building as possible. I love this. And he does make some money, right, Roger? He gets commissions. Oh, yeah. He makes actually a lot of money. Um, galleries have shown his work. And I want to straight up call it work because it is. It's beautiful artwork. Galleries have shown his original artworks. And he gets invited to these conventions. He gets a constant wow. stream of commission requests. He's made a lacrosse stick for a client recently. He's um, working on a replica house of the British properties. And I I think that what he's shown me is like, and this is a guy who does not have kids. So yeah. he really is just an adult fan of Lego. Amazing. Um, it's that the creativity just keeps on rolling with it. You you build and you yep. create and it's just never, never ends. Never a dull moment. Raji, thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. You know, ever since the pandemic started, there was talk about the vaccine. Oh, if we're able to get a vaccine, would you take it? Would you do this? So, you know, polling companies have been asking this question for a year and a half now. And what's been fascinating is... As the pandemic progressed, vaccines became more available. The answer to that question changed as time went by. For the latest on this, now we're joined by Steve Mossett, president of Insights West, because they have a poll out about that this morning. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so what did you ask people? Well, we, you're right. We have been tracking this for quite some time. We are asking people their likelihood to get the first dose of the vaccine. And uh, if you think just eight short weeks ago when we did this poll, I think we even talked about this. You and I, we only found uh, that 16% of BC residents had the dose and 43% were 100% certain. So that left the remainder who, who showed some degree of hesitancy. So we fast forward to the poll that we just released this morning, and we've got 75% of adults who have already received their first dose. Uh, and the remaining number is divided between 10% who are 100% certain to get the dose, so bringing us up to 85. We've got another 5% who say that they're very likely, so that's close to 90, and then the remainder uh, of uh, sort of the anti-vax crowd is down to about 5%. Okay, and that's... And a, a few that are undetermined. But that's really I- impressive when you think about it, right? Because there have been no incentives offered here in BC. This is just people deciding to do this. Yeah, you're right, and I think credit to and kudos to our provincial government and Dr. Bonnie. I mean, we've really rallied behind our leaders, unlike any other time in history, if you look at the ratings of Dr. Bonnie, you look at the, the ratings of the provincial government, even Premier Horgan, uh, they're through the roof and they've never been so high. So I think that's part of it. And uh, the other part I'd like to think, though, is that, you know, the poll also revealed that uh, BC residents are very satisfied with the process. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the gripes and complaints about the confusion at the beginning of the pandemic or at the beginning when the vaccines were starting to roll out. How do we get it? Where do we line up? But 92% of BC residents say that they're satisfied with the overall vaccination experience. And that includes almost 60% who say they're extremely satisfied. And you don't see those ratings uh, every day in, in other consumer things that we track. So super high ratings. That's what I was wondering, too. I mean, when does anybody talk about something having to do with the government and say 60% of people are satisfied? <laughs> we can't agree on bike lanes in Vancouver, let alone be satisfied with uh yeah, government program like this. So, Steve, how have you seen this change over time? Like, you've been asking the same questions for a year and a half, but what has changed during that time? I think it's the level of concerns people have. There's about 15, and I won't go through them all, but there's a whole bunch of concerns that people have about the vaccine starting from day one. And we started to see those track downwards to the point where we almost have to do a double take in the numbers because they really dropped considerably. 
we looked at uh, parents uh, and their concerns with their kids and vaccinations. And again, the, the, the polling results stunned us. And here we see the numbers just the other day, I think we're close to 75% of, of kids as well. So it's a quite a dramatic turnaround and it has to do with the change in sentiment about the hesitations around the vaccine. Right. I also love the fact that you asked people when it came to their being satisfied with the government response to this, you also broke it down by their support versus their political party. And that's the interesting thing. We've seen this throughout the pandemic, whether you're looking at provincial politics or federal politics, is the number of people in, um, uh, for example, in British Columbia, if you look at just NDP voters, 65% of NDP voters are satisfied versus 45% of Liberal voters. And and you compare that nationally as well. We've got Conservative voters way less satisfied with the overall process. Than, and than people who are voting NDP federally. That's still pretty good, though, when you're saying you didn't vote for this party, but still 45% of that group still think that it's going okay. It is. And, we, you know, our second part of the release that we were going to do, and we had to change our minds on it, is going back to the kids and the hesitations around kids and vaccines. And parents really have rallied behind it. They put put their fears aside and lined their kids up to get their first shot and the numbers uh, really uh, demonstrated that in both mm-hmm. actual results, but also attitude, attitudes. So what did you find interesting in here? Were some little tidbits? I think um, probably the other thing that's interesting is we, and we look at the vaccine-hesitant crowd. And this is a topic of fascination going back years, whether it's flu vaccine or, or any, any other child vaccinations. The age groups uh, t- tend to be the 35 to 54-year-old group, so that middle-aged group with uh, younger kids and overwhelmingly male. So even if you look at the hesitant crowd here, it's quite a bit higher among males than it is females across the province. Okay, so is this something you're going to continue to monitor? I don't know. Now that we've hit this yeah. high, high level, I mean, we're, we, we, we could potentially hit that level of 80 or 85%. And at that point, uh, true crowd immunity or herd immunity really kicks in. And, you know, they, the, the experts talked about it being at that 75% threshold and we're, we're already there, at least with the first dose. And we'll see, we may do some polling on the second dose because you, 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 anecdotally, you do hear people talking about, oh, I feel pretty good. The rates are going down. So do I really need that second dose? That might be on the agenda in a couple of weeks. Right. Depending on how those second dose vaccination rates go. Um, so was there any difference in people's satisfaction levels uh, determining whether they got it at like a, a mass immunization clinic, like the convention center versus a pharmacy? Dramatic. Yeah. The, the pop-up clinics uh, or pharmacies that have measurably lower ratings, like double the ratings of dissatisfaction, 16% dissatisfied versus those who went through the, I don't say the proper way, but the, the registered clinic approach. Oh, okay. That's interesting then. So, mm-hmm. so there's something less satisfying to people about the pharmacy experience. Yeah, the pharmacy experience was definitely less. And it really had to do with uh, a couple of things. One is uh, the wait, both at the beginning to, to get in and also the 50-minute the, the waiting period. If you think of some of those pharmacies in, in the middle of, say, nowhere or just in a maybe a part of town that you're not from, you may have found that the, the, the waiting area was not really that good of an experience. So, Steve, what do you think this tells us about how the, the vaccination program is going in BC? I think it's a bit of a relief because, you know, eight weeks ago, we were sending alarm bells that maybe we wouldn't reset herd immunity. And I think, again, kudos to all the health officials who have really hammered home the, the idea that, hey, it is safe, it is working. And, and those anecdotal stories that float around, you know, people posting on Facebook, hey, I got my vaccine, I feel great. I felt maybe a little ache or a pain. 
But other than that, nothing. I think those stories circulated enough where it really helped to draw to the level of concern that people have. And that's why we have the numbers we have today. All right. Well, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. Thanks very much. That is Steve Mossop. He's the president of Insights West. So their latest poll, maybe even their last, since like we're so into getting the vaccine now, uh, took a look at vaccine hesitancy and shows that over the time that they have been doing these polls during the pandemic, they have watched that number go down, 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 because more and more people are inclined to say, yes, let's get that vaccine. We know now that about 75% of British Columbians have already gotten their first dose. Our second dose numbers are climbing. And climbing fast. The last uh, couple of days of stats that we've gotten showed us that, in fact, on a daily basis now, more second doses are being given out than first doses, which is great, but they still want to get it as high as they possibly can. We also know that there are a lot more doses of vaccine arriving in the next couple of weeks here in British Columbia, something like 1.5 million vaccine doses just in the next couple of weeks. So, Yes, if you've gotten the email or the text, you know, from them saying that you can book your appointment for your first or second dose, please make sure you do it. It's critical to the reopening plan, step two, which we're going to be hearing about today, and also critical for us hitting that step three marker, which comes July the 1st. As for today's step two, Lots of stuff is, um, you know, available here. We're going to be getting gatherings, outdoor gatherings of 50 people allowed, indoor gatherings of 50 people allowed, provided there's a COVID-19, you know, safety plan, a protocol plan in place. Oh, sports allowed, you know, high intensity exercise allowed. It's going to, it almost feels like Freedom Day. I know that's what they're calling it in the UK, but it does feel like it's going to be a big change for